0: Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. An important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own, and not those of Refinitive or our parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group. So last week was painted with the broad strokes of the colonial pipeline outage, which led to panic buying and fist fights at the gas stations. But perhaps more transitory than the Fed's view of inflation, the outage was really just a short-term phenomenon. Now, sure, questions are being asked about national security, infrastructure, and though perhaps far afield in relation to the adage, um, we're getting some questions about renewables. And if our dependency had been more there, would this have been such a big deal? So rather than us beating the that dead horse, uh, Jim and I are going to talk today about carbon pricing. Well, Jim, what you got for us? A couple of points to make
1: before we start. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management granted an environmental approval for an 800-megawatt wind farm called the Vineyard Wind Offshore Energy Project. It is off the coast of Massachusetts and will consist of 84 turbines, first of its kind in the U.S. We do have two small offshore wind farms, a 20-megawatt and a 30-megawatt, but nothing this big. The 420-page environmental impact statement cited four major impacts. The two most impactful are to commercial fishing and the single grouping, navigation, and vessel traffic. The permit was approved anyway. I will point out the DAPL environmental assessment, which is 1,261 pages long, cited no significant impacts of any kind, yet it is under review. I wonder if we will see this dual standard challenged in court. Line 5 rhetoric is heating up again. And the entities are getting heavily stacked against the governor of Michigan's decree to shut down the pipeline. Labor unions and businesses from Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, as well as the various chambers of commerce from these states and the federal chambers of commerce from Canada and the United States, have filed Friends of the Court petitions. On Wednesday, May 12th, Ottawa invoked the 1977 Transit Pipeline Agreement in federal court in western Michigan. This treaty concerns environmental hydrocarbon transit between the U.S. and Canada as it applies to, and I quote, any measures instituted by a public authority in either territory, unquote. Hopefully, the ongoing mediation will put this matter to rest. Moving on. As I write and sip a very solid Bonnet du Chateau Cabernet, I'm reminded of the characters from the novel The Three Musketeers. Each of the three countries, Canada, U.S., and Mexico, exhibit some characteristics of each of the musketeers. But each country has a unique feature that stands on its own. For example, the environmental policies of the Canadian government, government resemble the character Aramis. They look great on the surface and even have an air of righteousness. However, like Aramis, the actions vibrate between righteousness and politicking. In the two big areas of emissions, power generation and transportation, the Canadian market has clearly spoken. For power generation, political wrangling has created a market with oversaturated hydro generation dams. The wrangling was clearly designed to limit the amount of natural gas power generation. Other than Alberta, it did oversaturate the power market. And that comes with a cost. For example, the Muskrat Falls Hydro Dam in Labrador cost more than the entire annual budget of the province. The people of Labrador will have to endure that debt burden for decades. On the transportation side, Using market forces to price carbon looks equally unreliable. There are about 23.2 million cars in Canada and about 150,000 electric and electric vehicle hybrids, even with $5,000 to $8,500 incentives for buying one of these cars. So using market forces to price carbon in Canada is looking unlikely to work. Canada's regulatory framework for air emissions didn't even start until 2007. The mandate being Canada was to reduce emissions by 20% from 2006 levels in a time frame from 2007 to 2020. So how did they do? In 2006, government statistics say the country emitted 730 million metric tons of CO2. In 2020, that number is 637 million metric tons. So close. In 2016, only a few months after Justin Trudeau assumed the Prime Minister role, Canada's National Climate Plan was released. This plan calls for a 30% reduction from 2005 levels before the year 2030. The plan uses a 2005 level of 815 million metric tons. Obviously, the bulk of this is CO2, but this plan also includes other type of emissions as recorded by the National Inventory Report. The National Climate Plan proposes to get the emissions down to a level of 588 million metric tons by 2030. Estimated levels are suggesting 2021 will be around 664 million metric tons. So I will point out during this time frame from 2005 to 2019, the GDP of Canada has expanded from $1.17 trillion to $1.65 trillion. That's a 41% increase while lowering emissions. With all that said, the Canadian government giving incentives through regulation may be the best option. The national carbon tax, called the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act of 2018, seems to be an economic and political disaster in the making. This act taxes each province and then returns the money to the residents of that province. An obvious attempt to turn the population's opinion against 10% of its own GDP and the single largest industry in Canada.
0: Uh, What can I even say? All right, let's talk about mysteries.
1: So here's the program with this metaphor. Aramis is Canadian policy. Athos is American policy. Porthos is Mexican policy. D'Artagnan is the low-carbon policy. And Milady? Eh, there has to be some mystery. I'll let you figure that out. Athos was a strong leader, but a deeply conflicted entity. His actions were mostly noble, albeit sometimes overly influenced by an actor with a totally different agenda. The United States has tried all three approaches to the carbon pricing. Regulation grew into an unwieldy beast. Carbon tax and the opposing version of that cap-and-trade were heavily discussed and dissected in 2014 before being chided by both sides and then attempted in various forms. Let me explain the difference. Carbon tax sets the price of the emissions and then lets the market determine the quantity of the emission reductions. Basically, as emissions become more expensive, companies produce less of it and or raise the price. Cap-and-trade fixes the volume of the emissions and then lets the market determine the price. Do both limit the quantity of emissions? In theory, yes. In practice, both ran into some serious program flaws that rendered them unworkable. Okay, then. Is there an answer in that bonnet du château? Well, yes, there is. All of the above? Maybe a bit more. Regulation is needed as a broad brush with some absolutes. Clearly, we cannot have the general population having access to uranium as an example. A carbon tax and or cap and trade may work with the proper framework. What is the proper framework? Far larger discussion than we have time for here. But here are some things we have learned from the previous experiments. One, the market needs to have significant underlying processes behind both sides. A one-sided governmental tax shoots an industry in the foot, and then when it bends over in pain, kicks the consumer in the face. A bill was introduced by a Democrat from Florida in the U.S. House resembling that of the Canada's carbon tax, it didn't even make it out of committee. It was squashed by other Democrats. By creating an environment of diverse and healthy liquidity on both sides, both a carbon tax and a cap-and-trade methodology can avoid many of the pathologies of a thin market. Number two, there needs to be a better design and oversight of the market. Lack of appropriate oversight has led to counterfeiting and some cornering of the markets by big financial players who figured out how to dominate one side of the market. Now, all right, Tex, you mentioned a bit more. What is this? If you want to win in a competitive free market, you need to create a better product. Period. Wood replace buffalo chips as a source of fuel for a pretty good reason. Coal replaced wood, and that gas is replacing coal, all for the same reason. Job owning, emission shaming, or heavy-handed government is not going to work because these things are not a replacement for a better product or process. My friends, that is the American way. Okay, okay. So, tell me about Porthos. Porthos? like Mexico, is unique and different from the other members of the troop. Porthos was the most independent of the musketeers, but was fiercely confident in his own strength and abilities. The personality issue with this guy is that he would flip from one idea to the next in a visionless quest for wealth. The Mexican oil business has some of these qualities. The first wells were drilled in 1869, but it wasn't until the development of the Mexican Central Railway and a guy named Edward Doheny that oil became commercialized in Mexico. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he was also the first person who drilled oil in California. And the inspiration for the movie character, Daniel Plainfield, from the movie There Will Be Blood. Love that movie. I drink your milkshake. Daniel Day-Lewis was phenomenal. Anyway, it didn't take long, about 15 years, for Mexico to become the second biggest exporter of crude oil in the world behind the United States. The Mexican government didn't like that an American, Edward Doheny, and a Brit, Wheatman Pearson, were making all the money on Mexican oil. Article 27 of the 1917 Constitution granted all subsoil resources to the Mexican government. In March of 1938, Mexican President Lazaro Cardenas announced the complete nationalization of the Mexican oil business. Three months later, Petróleos Mexicanos, Pemex, was born. Pemex was, and still is, the single biggest revenue source for the Mexican government. Why do I mention all this? It wasn't until 1988 that any environmental regulation appeared in Mexico. It's called the General Law on Ecological Equilibrium and Environmental Protection. In 1992, with the advent of NAFTA, this group of laws started to look a lot more like regulations from the United States. The huge difference being in Mexico, if there's a violation, the company is fined, and then they fix it. It's not a political issue. Here's my point. Any form of carbon pricing in Mexico has been on the path of regulation, not market-based. It's entirely been based upon business dealings. This is the way of Porthos. If one wants a better or different environmental law in Mexico, make a better business case. So he talked of Athos, Aramis, and Porthos, but what of D'Artagnan? His fate could mirror the fate of the low-carbon policy. For those who survived the 800 or so pages of this novel, you know that D'Artagnan did become a musketeer, but not as he had hoped. By the time he finally made it to his goal, he was heartbroken, full of regrets, and a shadow of the idealistic entity he once was. Uh, Corey, do you have OCD?
0: <laughs> Maybe, but uh, probably just classified as borderline. What I do have is some information on an OECD country. Actually, two. But first, here's an old Churchill quote that I've always liked. For a nation to try to tax itself unto prosperity... It's like a man standing in a bucket and trying to lift himself up by the handle. Jim covered the different avenues of what effectively all is carbon taxing. And for the record, I don't know what the best approach is for reducing carbon, but specifically for Latin American countries, taxing carbon is a bit tricky. Well, these economies, though some have agricultural exports and services, etc., are resource economies. They produce and sell oil to the world. And yes, perhaps there's some manufacturing and mineral extraction that could possibly fall under some sort of carbon reduction scheme as well. But today I'll stick to my dating. Okay. So my first organization for economic cooperation and development, AKA OECD country is Chile. Chile became an OECD member in 2010 until last year was the only Latin American country that was a member. Chile in 2019 had a purchasing power parity real GDP of nearly $460 billion, composed of agriculture at 4.2%, services at 63%, and industry at 32.8%. Chile has some oil reserves, but doesn't really produce anything. Rather, it imports from other countries, namely those in its neighborhood to run its three state-owned refineries. Total capacity of 236,000 barrels a day. The country has gasoline demand of around 80,000 barrels a day and diesel demand of around 170,000 barrels a day. So there's no oil being produced for export and the country actually has to import some gasoline and diesel to meet domestic demand. There are occasionally some refined products exports but those are rare and small volume. The real export in the country The real industry is copper. So the point is, Chile's energy industry is not going to spark any sort of, say, carbon tariff in another country by exporting crude or products to that country. You know, copper maybe, but outside of our scope. But Chile has a carbon tax. What? Yes. When it was passed in 2014, it was trumpeted as a victory and was the first of its kind in South America. So what does it do? Well, I mean, it targets power gen. Let me take a minute to knit some gloves for my scarf. Chile has nearly 20 gigawatts of electric capacity and, like other South American nations, has a percentage that is hydroelectric, about a third of capacity. There are renewables, but 40% of power gen is from coal, imported coal, like 90% imported. So with the carbon tax and with other laws encouraging the development of renewables – the country has shifted its aim towards more solar, biomass, etc. But the tax is only $5 per ton CO2 from emission sources that emit more than 25,000 tons of CO2 or 100 tons of particulate matter per year. It's an easy approach. No trading, no carbon tariffs for imported coal, just $5 per ton CO2. But in 2020, the task force was formed in consultation with the World Bank To rewrite the laws to move the country into carbon neutrality by 2050 and peak carbon by 2025. This would include the ability for a producer to offset the carbon tax by undertaking renewables projects. But again, Jim and I have talked to some length about this before when it comes to how some of these projects aren't exactly as they appear. That aside, this framework is expected to become operational in 2023. It is something that I will be watching, especially in relation to the country's refineries, and if in some way it begins to impact fuels demand. So,
1: OCD and OECD are different things? Huh, okay. So, you covered Chile because it's an OECD member country, which raises the expectation that it will not only be a good trade partner, but will be a willing participant to addressing perceived economic issues in the world, like climate change. But there's a new kid on the block in South America. Isn't
0: that right? Yes. Exactly why I spoke of Chile today. And yes, the OECD has a new member country. Since 2020 and really 2021 has been all about COVID-19, some other developments of importance have gone unnoticed. One of these developments know, for some people, is it Colombia became an OCD member country. Uh-oh. Colombia may be the world's second largest cut flowers exporter, but export money comes from energy. It's the world's fourth largest coal producer and is Latin America's third largest oil producer. And sure, 25% of the nation's 2020 crude oil exports went to China. That is, you know, of course, promised to cut emissions. But almost two-thirds of Colombia's crude oil exports make their way to the U.S. And the crude produced in Colombia tends towards the heavy sour variety. OECD membership generally means that a country is high income, and Colombia obviously meets this, as its PPP GDP is about 32% greater than Chile. However, you got to dig deeper, and we find that from a per capita basis, Colombia is significantly lower by comparison. And again much more reliance reliant on carbon-producing energy. But this is not, and at least this is not yet, the issue. Colombia instituted a carbon tax in 2017 that currently works out to about $5 a ton. Uh, the Colombians created this tax, partially because when oil prices started to fall in 2014, the government was looking for a way to protect revenues. But also, and maybe more import- importantly, the tax was passed to help the country's application for joining the OECD. Colombia's tax does not look like Chile's, however. Rather than stationary sources, Colombia's is focused on the consumption of refined products and triggers whenever a product is sold within the borders of the country. So, producers are responsible for collecting tax. And when products are imported, importers are responsible for collection. Based on content, gasoline is taxed about four and a half cents per gallon, diesel at five cents a gallon. And the law adjusts for inflation each year, but it's currently capped at $10 per ton. Another feature of Columbia's scheme deals with verified carbon units, or BCUs. These can be generated with projects that meet the standards of the verified carbon standard program and used to offset carbon taxes. So, since Colombia has its own carbon accountability system, does that mean that other countries, for example, the U.S., will eschew any carbon tariff on the import of Colombian crude? That generally is the place to start. You tax on the country that you are receiving from does not have a taxation system. Now, given the structure of Colombia's taxation scheme, I don't necessarily think so. Collectively, carbon taxes in Chile cover 39% of the country's emissions. Why Colombia's covers 24%. That's it. Chile and Colombia are the only two South American com- countries that have a carbon and scheme. Notoriously absent, South America's largest economy.
1: Ah, uh, yes, Brazil. But surely they have something in the works.
0: Absolutely. So Brazil's corporates have been amenable to some sort of carbon pricing for at least the last eight years. And more recently, there has been work on creating a carbon trading scheme. This, even as energy emissions within the country only contribute about 6% of total emissions. A real issue is land use. That aside, we've seen the Brazilian federal government relax some of its environmental standards and the country see more deforestation. Uh, This has led to a revision of Brazil's nationally determined contributions, NDC, under the Paris Climate Agreement. Seeing the percentage mitigation pledge yeah, stay the same, but with the country changing its baselines, allowing 400 million more tons by 2030 than its original NDC target in 2015. So even as Brazil focuses on some sort of carbon pricing trading system, other actions by the government don't necessarily support it. Compound that with increased crude production and export perhaps in the future, uh, refined products production and export that without a true carbon scheme will potentially be uh, faced at another border with a carbon tariff. But of course, given that China is such a substantial customer of Brazilian crude, maybe this reality is someday farther into the future. All right, Jim, that's all for me. Please close us out.
1: Environmental policy and carbon pricing are particular to individual countries. As we have heard, Whether it's regulation or market-based or a combination of both, the policy must fit within the fabric of each of the country's culture or it has no chance to succeed. In there lies a lot of detailed work for the Paris Climate Agreement to eventually reach its goal. It also opens up a lot of opportunity.
0: To be sure. Thanks, Jim. And until next time, thanks everyone for tuning in.